0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All scripture is breathed out by God. That's what we read in our reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 today. And this is one of, of many biblical texts that supports what we call our, our doctrine of inspiration. Right? The, the inerrancy of God's word and the inspiration of God's Word. Uh, a couple others, just, just to name a few. Proverbs 35, 30, verse five, you should say, "Every word of God proves true." Or in John 17:17, 17, 17, our Lord Jesus says this: "Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, as He's praying to His Father about his disciples. Now this is what the Bible says about itself. And some of you believe it, no question, right? Your 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 statement, your your motto is the Bible says it, I believe it. That settles it. Right? And yet there's others of you who might not be quite as convinced might not be quite as sure whether you're a full-blown skeptic or whether you're someone who is just wrestling with, well, what about what I saw on the YouTube video I watched last week that <laughs> discredits the Bible and points out supposed in, uh, errors within this inerrant word of God. That's a popular issue that people wrestle with. A popular view today might might be something like this: that that the Bible, yeah, it's okay. It's a it's a, it's a helpful book, I suppose, but uh, certainly certainly not perfect. And nice stories, some nice morals and teachings, I suppose, but others, it's just written by by humans. And and there's some stuff that's in here that I just, quite frankly, don't know if I agree with. Uh, So it's, yeah, maybe it's good, but not inerrant, certainly not breathed out or inspired by God Himself. And so, what I want to do, the first part of of our sermon today, I want to spend a little bit of time showing how Scripture, how God's Word, not necessarily is, is inspired, I'll, I, I believe that, but I, I just want to show this, that it's reliable. A, a, as a book, as as writings, it's something that, that we can trust and put confidence in, regardless of whether or not you go as far to think that it's inspired, that it's breathed out by God. So just just a few things. And... A lot of what I'm going to talk about, I, I pulled from uh, this book. Uh, it's a compilation of works by a man named Josh McDowell. He does a lot of, of work uh, in the area of, of defending the Bible and defending the faith, right? And it's, the book is called A Ready Defense. And so, as you can see, I'm not going to go through the entire book today, unless you want me to. I mean, how much time? No. Isaac's at a soccer game. It's at 1230, so we'll, we'll just know that's, that's, that's the limit here on it. So, uh, but first, I, 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 well, I want to I touch on things, though. And there are, there are four things in particular that I want to touch on. I want to talk about how the Bible is reliable historically, how the Bible is reliable geographically, how the Bible is reliable archaeologically, and how the Bible is reliable literarily, right? glad I was able to say that. So, history, first of all. Something that's important for us to, to know about the Bible is that the Bible isn't a book that says, uh, a long, long time ago in a land far, far away. No. The Bible is, is grounded in history. Just one example of this being the case comes from Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Caesar Augustus is someone that we know from extra-biblical writings from history It was a real person. He was the real emperor of Rome. And so when Luke... Writes in the first century A.D., we know that he he is historically connecting these events with things that were going on concurrently with the birth of Christ. So historically, we can trust that the Bible is reliable. Now geographically, geographically, we can look through the Bible and the Bible, it, it names towns, specific places like uh, Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Egypt, like the nation of Egypt and, and Babylon and, and Rome. And, and it talks about uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, or, or Cyrus, who followed after him, who is the king of, of Middle Persia. Uh, it, it, these are real, real uh, places, real people, and this is. We can look at a map, and we can say, "Oh, yep, that's where that is." Oftentimes, what happens? We read in scripture about a town, and then we go to the place where we think it is, and we realize, "Oh, it's just it, it's just dust and dirt and barren here." And we start digging, and we realize, oh, here are the ruins of the town that was supposed to be in this place, just like the Bible says. Uh, another, Another example from Scripture, again from Luke. And they rose up and drove Jesus out of the town, that's Nazareth, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, So that they could throw him down the cliff. Why is that important? Jesus, at this point, he was at his hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth was at this time puny, super small, like maybe twenty or thirty families of a town. So small that most historical writings that we see don't even mention it. Josephus, what they don't even list Nazareth in the, the list of towns that they talk about. So much so that we, we can understand why, why Nathan would say, Nazareth? Jesus from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And we see here, Jesus goes, he preaches in the synagogue there, he says some things that his hometown wasn't excited about. And they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Now, just so there's no ha, cliffhangers, pun intended here. Um, we, we know that Jesus pulls his Jedi mind trick. He walks through the crowd and he continues on his way. It wasn't his, his time. So he doesn't die at this point. But we would think, huh, Nazareth, that, that has to be a, a town that's on a on a hill. Here's a picture of Nazareth. <laughs> Do you see how they could take Jesus to the cliff and try to throw him off there? Geography. You know, if Nazareth was just Nebraska or something, right, and just flat, they, they might not line up. But geographically, we see that the writings of the Scriptures are reliable, archaeologically. Now, there are ancient ruins that are um, supported by, by, the, by the Bible. Archaeologists go and they, they dig, and they find things that are consistent with what the Scripture tells us was happening at that time. One example, Pontius Pilate. Did you know that before 1961, that many critical historians believed that Pontius Pilate was just made up, that he wasn't a real person? And the reason that they believed this is because Pontius Pilate doesn't show up in any uh, other documents from history, any other writings. And so, they, they just didn't believe that, you know, the prefect of Judea, and he doesn't show up in any of these other places? Eh, maybe, maybe the Bible was just stretching things just to make a good story at that point. But in 1961, a couple archaeologists, excavators from Italy, were in this, the town of Caesarea by the sea, so on the east coast of the Mediterranean. And they were digging there. They were digging up the ruins and they were uh, discovering things. And one of the things that they discovered is this. Now, looking at this right now, it might be a little bit hard to, to make out what's happening. First, uh, because it's, it's old, 2,000 years old, but also because it's written in Latin. But what's, what is uh, written here? He's an inscription. And then what it says is this Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has presented the Tiberian to the Caesareans. The Tiberian was, was I, if I understand, if I remember correctly, if that was like the, the amphitheater on the coast there, right? Tiberium, uh, Tiberius was Caesar. At the time. So you can see why Pontius Pilate would want to name this after Caesar to be in his good graces. This dates perfectly to the time of Pontius Pilate. So just one of of many supports archaeologically that the Bible, that scriptures are reliable. Then, literarily, There are lots of ancient writings from Plato and Socrates and uh, Aristotle, right? And there aren't that many texts oftentimes for these writings. Now, one that there is really good support for is Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad was, was written in 900 B.C., it's the earliest copy that we have in hand dates to 400 BC and there are about 643 copies of the Iliad available today. Now, I mean looking at that, would you say that's that's pretty good documentation of the, of Homer's Iliad that it's it's a legitimate writing, that there, that there um, are consistencies between the different manuscripts. And that's the second best next to the New Testament. Now now look at the New Testament. New Testament was written between 40 and 100 A.D. Earliest copy that we have in hand what well, is 125 A.D. So just a couple of decades within someone's life span of when the originals were were written and we have over 24,000 copies <laughs> like literally the 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 text of scripture is is reliable it's it's supported so that and again, these are just a few of the things that support the, the, um, wor- the words of Scripture being authentic. This, I didn't even go into prophecies from the Old Testament that have become fulfilled or uh, that sort of stuff. So um, this is just to help us to realize that we can trust what's in this, in this book but we it's more than just trusting its reliability. what paul when he writes to timothy again we're we're in the series through first and second timothy series called equipped paul is probably about to die for the faith have his head lopped off he's he's encouraging timothy in pastoral ministry as Timothy was the pastor of the church in in Ephesus. And what Paul says, he doesn't just say all Scripture is reliable. No, he goes a step further, a big step further. He says all Scripture is breathed out by God. The breath of God. If we look at the ways that the breath of God come up in scripture, we start to understand how profound of a statement Paul was making to Timothy at this point. A creation God formed Adam, man Out of the dust of the ground, but he wasn't alive yet. What happened that gave life to Adam? God breathed into him the breath of life. The of life, the spirit came into Adam. I, I can't help as as I was. Go, on my walk this morning, I was thinking about this. Is it coincidence that of all the known planets in creation, that the Earth is the only one that has an atmosphere that we can breathe? Do you think that's consistent with God breathing into? I I, I think so. I think so. Now, it wasn't too much longer after this that, that then Satan, in the form of a serpent, he came to Adam and Eve, and he came speaking, and he came breathing. Oh, but they were different words. He came breathing lies, and breathing deceit, and breathing death, Did God really say? And it was ugly and it was toxic. And yet Adam and Eve believed it. They breathed in those lies. And death came. In fact, oftentimes throughout the Old Testament, when it's talking about the death of an individual it'll say something like this, that so-and-so lived so-and-so many years and then breathed his last. Whew. When we breathe in the lies of Satan, death is the result. And, and when we look at the Ten Commandments, two of the Ten Commandments have to do with, with words that we speak with our breath. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. And that and then the eighth commandment should not bear false witness. That's what we're told not to do, not to breathe the lie, the deceit, the death of the devil. How many of us have been to uh, a sports game, right, to a to stadium, right? I, I think of, of the, the time when I played football in college back at Concordia, Chicago, and we had a team member whose father spoke a lot at the games, and they weren't nice words. His father spoke vulgarity. His father spoke critically. His father s- spoke insults, and as he's breathing out these words, it was toxic. Like the whole environment, the stadiums, and even us on the field, the players just felt the death. To the point to where our coach had to say, "Either you stop." Speaking, or you stop coming to our games. It was that bad. And we can think of, of times where people speak trash talk, as we call it, where they, they breathe out words that are just from the devil, from the enemy. And we can also think of times, if we're honest, where the words we've breathed out haven't been all that God pleasing. They've been downright sinful. They've been words that, oh, as soon as they're spoken, people are are hurt. Lies are spread. Death happens. Uh, we like to think uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But it's not true. It's not true at all. Words hurt. I'm rubber, you're glue. What you say bounces off of me and sticks back to you. But does it actually bounce off? Words that cut to our hearts. Words that we have spoken that cut to the hearts of other people that have broken relationships with our family, with our loved ones. (sighs) Lord, have mercy on us for the times that we have spoken and breathed words of death. And he does. And he has. He's had a mercy on us through our, our Lord Jesus Christ. Became flesh. And as a cre- uh, the, the creation, a creature breathing in the very words of life that the Father breathed upon creation. And that he lived a life speaking the words of truth. God's word is truth, he tells us. And then he dies a death. A death that we deserve. A death that We've earned, and yet he steps into our place and he goes to the cross and as he's he's hanging on the cross, he expires. How does crucifixion kill someone? Suffocation. He was unable to breathe the weight of his body hanging from the nails, was bearing down the weight of our, our sins, our guilt, our shame, crushing him to the last. So that both Mark and Luke, in their Gospels, when they record the death of Christ, what do they say? They say he breathed his last. can't keep a good man down. Three days later, he's resurrected, steps out from the tomb, (sighs) once again breathes the breath of life. And when he breathes the breath of life, he doesn't just keep it to himself, but he gives it to his followers. That evening, Easter evening, he goes to the upper room where his disciples are hiding because they're scared and they don't want to die. They don't want to suffocate they don't want to, to, uh, to, to be uh, attacked by the Romans or, or the Jews or the, the emperor or, or, or the devil. And Jesus comes into that room. He says, peace be with you. And then he gives them the Holy Spirit. And John tells us how he gave the Holy Spirit. Anyone? By breathing on them the breath of life given to the followers of Christ to the point where now these people who are hiding, scared, become bold. People who denied Christ even, like the Apostle Paul, people who tried to stop the Christian movement, received the breath of life. And then what do they do? They go around breathing the breath of life. To others. And this is where we we realize that the Scriptures, the Scriptures are life, are God's breath, because the Scriptures tell us about Jesus and about what He's done for us. And so when Paul goes on his missionary journeys, he's arguing from the Old Testament, from the Scriptures, he's proving from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ. There are people uh, the other apostles who spread out throughout the Roman empire and beyond preaching breathing the gospel speaking uh, about Jesus Paul or what John tells us in verse uh, uh, I'm sorry in chapter 20 verse 31 when he is coming to the end of his gospel, he says that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and in him you may have life. This word that God breathes out to us, breathes through Jesus Christ, is the the word of life. and That was true then, when the scriptures were written. And it's still true today. Bible translators devoted their lives to writing copies of the Bible, 24,000 of them, so that the word of God that's been breathed out can be spread around the world. Before the printing press, this is done by uh, Quill and and oil, and, or, uh, and uh, ink, and, and on a papyrus. And then this past week at home, we've been learning about Johann Gutenberg, how he invented the printing press, and how now 200 copies of, of the scriptures could be made by one person in three years, which at that time, that was record speed. And then Luther comes right on the heels of that. Luther translating the Bible from Latin into German, the common language of the people, so that people could breathe the word of life. People died for translating the word of God into the common vernacular. This is why... It can pain pastors so much when a Bible sits at home collecting dust. You have here the God-breathed word of life. It speaks into your soul. It tells you about Jesus. It gives us life. In his name. When we read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest scripture, God is once again breathing his breath of life upon us. Just like in the Garden of Eden, just like Jesus in the upper room, just like when when Moses and, and Isaiah and Paul and Luke wrote the scriptures and the illustration i could think of that that spoke to me the most is that of cpr how many of us have been trained in in cpr right if someone loses the breath of life and 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 what a powerful way for us to be there to save to to breathe into their lungs so that they they can continue life in this creation. In the same way, God's word is breath to our lungs and to our soul so that we can may, may have life. So may we, as God's people, believe what Paul writes to Timothy, what God's word says about itself. That all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen.